Chapter Seven of Irene Idisley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Irene Idisley by Amanda McKittrick Ross. Chapter Seven. Distant shores have great attractions and large expectations. They harbor around their beaches the exile and patriot, the king and peasant, the lawyer and artisan, the rising swindler and ruined prince. Spotted throughout the unclaimed area of bared soil may be seen the roughly constructed huts and lofty homes of honest industry. Yes, and concealed therein are hearts yearning for the land of nativity and national freedom, hearts which sorrow after bygone days, and sink low when brooding over the future tide of fortune which already has stopped its gentle flow. The reception on the evening of Irene's marriage was glorious and brilliant, as were all those given by Lord and Lady Dilworth, and, although attended by society's cream alone, there appeared a visible and unhidden vacancy in the absence of her who so often lent a glow of gaiety to the high-toned throng. There seemed to be no rival now of buried lineage to mar their desire or incur the jealousy of would-be opponents, no one to share sympathetically with the afflicted sister of equality and worth, nor was there any one present of such knightly and commanding dignity as he, who, not many hours previous, had taken upon him the sad duty of delivering up the keys of devotion to her who kept the door of ardent adoration locked against his approach. It would probably be a long time ere such a scene of silly jealousy and ire would take place as that witnessed, in which the greater majority of those present were then partakers. And further, it would surely be a much longer period before these guests would again share alike in their generosity so often extended them by Lord and Lady Dilworth. Next day after Irene's marriage was a busy one at Dilworth Castle. Hasty and numerous were the preparations for desolation and departure. Weeks preceding the joyful event, or what should have been, were leisurely devoted to the artistic arrangements in every room within the lordly manor. But alas, so sudden now was joy's termination, that hours alone were the boundary of command. It may be stated that Lord Dilworth owned three very extensive estates, namely Dilworth, Airtown, and Howden. The first mentioned extended around the castle of that name, encompassing a spacious tract of soil indeed, and might have done justice to moderation in its most expensive form. The Airtown estate, which entirely covers the southern portion of Cheshire, owns a magnificent hall, the residence of the Earl of Turkisham, and, although not considered so lucrative as Dilworth, may be estimated a handsome dowry for the son of any rising nobleman in the realm. The Howden estate, on which are elegantly formed two buildings of note, namely Blandford Castle and Lauderdale Lodge, both exquisite constructions of architecture and skilled workmanship, and occupied respectively by Sir Sidney Hector and Admiral Charles de Pew, lies chiefly around the southwest of Yorkshire, and is not quite so desirable or adapted for agriculture as the two first mentioned, being mostly rented for grazing purposes by the numerous and varied owners of its rugged plots. These estates became so heavily mortgaged that prompt sale was indispensable, 
and, the matter being quietly arranged six months beforehand, the sixth day of August was the day set apart for the disposal of same. Bidders were numerous, and offers low. Eventually the purchasers were as follows. The Marquis of Orland bought Dilworth Estate, Lord Henry Heaton bought Airtown Estate, whilst the lot of Howden Hall fell upon Sir Rowland Joyce, the famous historian and national bard. Thus were wrested from Lord and Lady Dilworth their luxurious living. They were driven from their nursery of rich and complicated comforts, their castle of indolence and ease. They were now thrown upon the shivering waters of want, without a word of sympathy in the dreadful hour of their great affliction, without home or friend to extend shelter or sustenance, and cast afloat upon the ocean of oscillating chance to speed across it as best they could. Was Lord Dilworth therefore to be pitied? Were the torrents of gold which were bound to trickle from these enormous lands and dwellings, manufactories and villages, too trifling for his use? Not a morsel of pity was offered either him or Lady Dilworth, as their circumstances became known in the homes of their associates, who so often fed on the fat of their folly, and graced their well-lined tables, always covered with dainties of deserving censure. Could human mind contemplate that she who reigned supreme amongst society, she who gave the ball in honour of Irene Iddesley's marriage, should ere four days be a penniless pauper? Yet such was fact, not fiction. The seventh day of August saw Lord and Lady Dilworth titled beggars, steering their course along the blue and slippery waves of the Atlantic, to be participators in the loathing poverty which always exists in homes sought after destruction, degradation, and reckless extravagance. So soon may the house of gladness and mirth be turned into deepest grief. How the wealthiest, through sheer folly, are made to drink the very essence of poverty and affliction in its purest form! How the golden dust of luxury can be blown about with the wind of events, and is afterwards found buried in the fields of industry and thrift! Their names, which were as a household word, would now be heard no more, and should sink into abject silence and drowned renown, leaving them to battle against the raging war of ruin and hunger, and retire into secluded remorse. On the return of Sir John and Lady Dunfern from their honeymoon, after four weeks' sojourn, what was her ladyship's consternation on perceiving Dilworth Castle in darkness, as she and Sir John swept past its avenue on the way to their own brilliantly lighted mansion? She was rather more taciturn on the night of her return than even during her stay in Florence, and it was only upon her approaching her former place of temporary retreat and touchy remembrances that words began to fall from her ruby lips in torrents. "'Tell me, I implore of you, Sir John and husband, why the once blithe and cheerful spot of peace is now apparently a dismal dungeon on the night of our homecoming, when all should have been a mass of dazzling glow and splendour. Can it be that she who proffered such ecstasy for months before, on the eve of our return, is now no more? Or can it be possible that we have crossed each other on the wide waters of tossing triumph or wanton woe?' Speak at once for pity's sake, and do not hide from me the answer of truth and honest knowledge. O oh, merciful heavens! 
Here Lady Dunfern drooped her head before Sir John got time to even answer a word, and drawing from his pocket a silver flask, proceeded to open its contents when the horses suddenly stopped, and a gentle hand politely opened the carriage door to eagerly await the exit of its master and future mistress from its cushioned corners of costly comfort and ease. "'Tom!' cried Sir John, in great and rending agony. "'Kindly wait for a few minutes, as her ladyship has been frightfully overcome only a short time ago by the blank appearance in and around Dilworth Castle.' she fears something dreadful must surely have happened to lady dilworth in her absence since she has failed to make the occasion of our homecoming a merry torchlight of rejoicing tom who had been in sir john's service for the past twenty years was about to testify to the truth of his remarks when he was joined by other members of the household who rushed to welcome their beloved master home once more accompanied by his beautiful bride of whom they all had heard so much. Sir John saw that delay was dangerous, and helping to remove his darling Irene from the seat on which she unconsciously reclined, succeeded in placing her on a low couch in the very room he so often silently prayed for her presence. Bathing her highly heated temples with a sprinkling of cooling liquid concealed in his flask, Sir John lost no time in summoning the village doctor, who, on arrival, pronounced Lady Dunfern to have slightly recovered, and giving the necessary orders, left the room. It was fully two hours ere she partly recovered from her ghastly swoon, to find herself the object of numerous onlookers of the household, of which she was now future mistress. Pale and death-like did she appear in the eyes of her husband, who was utterly overcome with grief at the sudden collapse of his wife under such a stroke of anticipated sorrow, and more grieved was he still when he found on inquiry that the removal of Lord and Lady Dilworth from their heightened haunt of high-born socialism must sooner or later be revealed to her, who as yet had only tasted partly of the bitter cup of divided intercourse and separated companionship many many were the questions asked by lady dunfern relative to lady dilworth when dr corbett arrived next morning to pronounce her almost recovered and strange but true that no one could possibly have humoured her in such a manner to warrant recovery as the village doctor until she felt really strong enough to battle against the sorrowful tale of woe with which sir john should shortly make her cognizant on learning from his lips, so soon as her ability occasioned, the real state of affairs concerning the emigrants, who were now compelled to wander on the track of trouble, she received the truth with awe and smothered distress. The new sphere in which Lady Dunfern was about to move seemed to her strange. The binding duty which tied her firmly to honour and obedience was kept prominently in vague view. The staff of menials would probably find the rules of her husband more in accordance with their wishes than those which she was beginning to already arrange. She commenced her married life with falsehood, and she was fully determined to prove this feature more and more as the weeks and months rolled along. She was not now afraid of the censure of one whose face she may never more behold, and who was the sole instigation of plunging her into a union she inwardly abhorred perhaps had she never been trained under the loving guidance of oscar otwell her revered tutor 
she would only have been too eager to proclaim her ecstasy at her present position more vigorously but all fetters of power were visibly broken which she wished should remain united leaving her mother of her future premeditated movements as time moved on sir john and lady dunfern seemed to differ daily in many respects which occasioned dislike in the breasts of both and caused the once handsome cheerful face of the much respected owner of dunfern to assume a look of seriousness these differences arose chiefly through his great disinclination to attend the numerous social gatherings which awaited them after their marriage. Sir John, finding it almost impossible to stare socialism in the face, seemed inclined rather to stick to the old rule of domestic enjoyment, never forgetting to share fully his cheerful conversation with his wife, when so desired, which, sorrowful to relate, was too seldom." Now that Lady Dunfern was an acknowledged branch of society, her elegant presence would have been courted by all those who so often favoured Lady Dilworth with their distinguished patronage, but her social hopes being nipped in the bud by her retiring husband, she dare not resent, and determined, in consequence, to make herself an object of dislike in her home, and cherish her imprisoned thoughts until released, for good or evil." End of chapter 7